I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the links between food and physical health are well known. But what about our mental health? New research shows a nutrient-rich diet has a positive impact on ADHD, anxiety, and depression. So when you think about the brain as what I like to call the hungriest organ, which is that it's 2% of your body weight, but between 20 to 40% of the nutrients you consume go towards brain metabolic activity, you start to realize that when you're eating, you're predominantly feeding your brain. And later, how food companies keep us addicted to their products. I think one of the most powerful aspects of processed food is speed. Everything about processed food is designed for speed, the packaging, the formulation, and then the speed with which the products are able to deliver that hit of joy to the reward center of the brain is faster than tobacco and and alcohol. Mental health and nutrition, and how some foods are made to keep us hooked. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. When it comes to staying fit and healthy, there are a few established practices. Get a good night's sleep, moderate exercise, and healthy food. Poor eating habits, too many junk snacks loaded with sugar and salt, a diet heavy on processed foods can all be detrimental to our physical well-being. But a poor diet isn't just bad for our bodies, it's bad for our brains. Researchers and studies have shown for some time that poor nutrition can play a role in worsening mood disorders, such as anxiety and depression. And mental health disorders are on the increase, not just in the U.S., but globally. Anxiety and depression are leading that trend. So could poor nutrition be contributing to the epidemic of mental illness? Is a lack of nutrients putting us at greater risk for the development of mental disorders? New research suggests that optimizing nutrition may be the most effective way to avoid and treat mental health problems. In her 2018 TEDx talk, viewed millions of times, Professor Julia Rucklidge asks, if we're really serious about dealing with mental health, we need to get serious about the critical role played by nutrition. Julia Rucklidge is professor of clinical psychology in the School of Psychology, Speech, and Hearing at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She's also co-author with Bonnie Kaplan of The Better Brain, Overcome Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition. Julia Rucklidge, welcome to Life Examined. It's my pleasure. Uh, You're trained as a clinical psychologist, and I I haven't been through what you've been through, but being trained as a therapist, we do not study nutrition. Or if we do, it's glancingly, really quickly. We're not quite sure the importance that it plays in mental disorders. So maybe you can walk us back a number of years to why you thought there was an important correlation here. Sure. So like you then, and like everyone probably in the United States and in North America, I was also trained that nutrition was pretty much irrelevant to the brain. I did my my training at the University of Calgary in Alberta, just just north of you. And um, that was back in the, not, I started in, in my training in 1993 and finished in 1998. And at that time, very much so, it was medication, psychotherapy, and nutrition really wasn't even, didn't even feature other than perhaps saying that it just doesn't work and it's not worth going down that route. So when my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, who I co-wrote The Better Brain with, was approached by some families in southern Alberta, Canada, um, who were claiming that they were using nutrients to treat really serious psychiatric disorders like bipolar disorder, depression, psychosis, you can imagine she um, said, take your snake oil somewhere else, not interested Uh in this uh, concept. But uh, but the thing that I admire about Bonnie as a PhD supervisor and something that I try to instill in my own students is that you do need to, you know, sometimes you have to still be curious and you have to be open to ideas, even if they contravene your, your way of thinking. Right. And what happened for her was that they persisted and sent her data of people in their small little community, a place called Raymond, Alberta, tiny little place um, just north of the border. And, and and showing these, you know, they were tracking symptoms of bipolar disorder, I think in that case, and showing these people getting well and staying well with these nutrient combinations of minerals and vitamins. So she thought, okay, I'll do a small little clinical trial. And so she published those results along with some other psychiatrists who also had some interesting early observations on this treatment showing people getting well and staying well with lowered doses of medications, which really I think is is really an important finding. 
So these were open trials, so they are not you. You always they're very people criticize them because they aren't they don't have a placebo control, and she wanted to run an RCT, but for lots of reasons, including that Health Canada shut her down um, doing those clinical trials back in the I think it was around two thousand three two thousand four. She realized that maybe if we to get the research done, she needed to look elsewhere. So by then, I had moved from Calgary, finished my PhD, went to, the, to Toronto, did a postdoc at the Hospital for Sick Children, and then moved to New Zealand, what I thought was for just a couple of years back in 2000, and I'm still here. Mm. Uh, it is an absolutely wonderful place to live. And so she came and visited and, and presented these data, and I was like, wow, that is pretty impressive around the changes, and I trust Bonnie. So I, by then, I'd lost that naive impression you have as a graduate student that everyone gets well with your treatments. And right. I was I had my own studies that I was showing uh, that, you know, people with ADHD were still really symptomatic despite getting the best care. And and you have to stop and think, did I go into this in order for people to continue to be symptomatic? Or are we not looking for people to go into remission? Isn't that our goal is for people to get better? So I thought, what do I have to lose? I will study these nutrients. Um, Bonnie was pretty persuasive. And so I started clinical trials in 2007, 2008. It's very small trials, just like Bonnie observed the same thing. About 70, I think it was 70, 80% of the, pe the people in the first study that I did, very small, 15 um, people with ADHD, had wonderful responses. And they, what was really remarkable was that just with minerals and vitamins, their ADHD symptoms reduced, their, they, were, they were less um, moody and volatile and irritable, which is really a common feature of ADHD. So you were seeing improvements of, of 70 to 80%. I mean, can you say a little bit more about what was coming into you in terms of the data and some of the mental disorders you were seeing improvements in? Sure. So, um, so we were seeing 70 to 80% of people in that very first uh, sort of, it was an open label trial, everyone knew what they were taking. But the, um, in terms of a response rate, that's what we got in this, uh, I think it was about 15 patients. So but what was really remarkable, Jonathan, was that not only did we see improvements in their ADHD symptoms, we were also hearing about improvements in their mood, they were less volatile, they were less irritable, they were telling us about their sleep being better, they were calmer, less anxiety, and those are often features that go along with ADHD. And so to hear about those other um, in, you know, uh, changes that were happening for them was really quite, to me, it was really remarkable because I'd never really seen that with psychotherapy and even medications because we know medications can actually increase irritability in some people rather than improve it. Right. So I then launched into a whole bunch of clinical trials, which are the clinical trials that I've been doing for the last 15 years. Mm. And, um, and I'm still going because we really are finding for some people, it's not everybody, but for some people, when the change happens with the vitamins and minerals, it really can be life-changing for them. So when we look at a medical model, we hear words like SSRIs, which are supposed to change the level of serotonin in the brain, or we hear about dopamine or norepinephrine. There's this kind of cocktail of neurotransmitters that we call that are supposed to have an impact on mental disorders. And so there are medications that supposedly will help um, bring these back into alignment, even though I know all of this stuff is being questioned more and more. But let me just say this, using that model, what do we know about food or food's ability to have an impact on serotonin? Or maybe we have to just kind of think of this as a completely different um, scientific way of approaching the brain anyway. But I'm curious what you know about that. Sure. So I don't think it's necessarily different, but just operating at a different like downstream, I think, in first, at least some of the reasons why we think that they're having a positive effect on on symptoms associated with mental disorders. So uh, so there's I think we've got a, quite a few uh, leads at this stage. One of the most obvious ones is to say that to make serotonin, which we know is important for mood. Now, I know that it's getting, you know, the chemical imbalance theory is being challenged at the moment and 
and that there's no evidence that people have a chemical imbalance, there's a, there, that's complicated and we, we don't need to go there. Um, but what we do know is still that regardless of those studies that have been you know recently questioning that, what we do know is that serotonin is important for mood. We know that dopamine is important for attention. That's been shown and established very clearly. So the, the nutrients are required, are essential cofactors to make your serotonin, to make your neuro, all, to make um, norepinephrine or to make dopamine, etc. So if you look downstream for the conversion of, say, tryptophan, which is an amino acid that you get out of your food, to serotonin, you need an enzyme and you need cofactors. And there's no special cofactor. And those cofactors are your minerals and vitamins like zinc or B6 or molybdenum, etc. So there's like thousands and thousands of pathways involved in the um, making of serotonin and also metabolizing serotonin. So that in itself shows you that minerals and vitamins are absolutely essential to, in, to support the body in making those neurotransmitters. The same goes for making enzymes. The same goes for, say, making ATP, which are, is made for energy production. That's the mitochondria. And they require, um, in order for the mitochondria to make ATP, you need these vitamins and minerals um, along the way. Uh, to support the microbiome, we know that we need uh, you know, vitamins and minerals are essential. And, uh, you know, so so just in terms of uh, supporting, say, for example, the methylation cycle, which is some is the cycle that creates these methyl groups, which is your carbon and three hydrogens that has an impact on either turning your genes on or turning your genes off. So it's really important for that epigenetic effects. Again, to make met these methyl groups, you need the presence of these minerals and vitamins. So when you think about that, the, the mechanism of action is probably quite broad. And in fact, our research where we've tried to, uh, to seek that out and figure out how are these micronutrients working, we have observed changes in the microbiome over even a very short period of time, over a 10-week trial with ADHD, we saw increases in diversity of the microbiome. We've seen that methylation does get changed really like it's a small effect and it's crossing probably across the, the entire genome. But again, we are seeing these subtle in influences. There are some people in the States who are currently looking at the effects that it might have on the metabolites of neurotransmitters. So we look forward to seeing what that they find there so that they, we can see whether or not we can um, confirm that indeed they're changing and upregulating or changing the production of serotonin, for example. So some of them are theoretical, hypothetical. Some of them, we've got some data, but we know so much about what minerals and vitamins do that it's completely staggering that uh, we don't pay more attention to ensuring that we get vitamins and minerals in our diet. And if you can't get them out of your diet, because if you're eating a sad diet, the standard American diet, then you don't actually get a lot of vitamins and minerals out of that diet. And so you may need to supplement in those cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you've used the word uh, micronutrients a couple times. And I know those were also, uh, that's, that's the term that was used when putting some of these studies in place. C can you mm -hmm. define those a little bit more clearly and, and what kind of, and maybe the amount of micronutrients that were being provided to patients in these trials? Sure, that's a really good question for your listeners. Uh, so vitamins and minerals are, so micronutrients we collectively sort of think about as vitamins and minerals, some amino acids may would fall into that category as well. But the main focus should really be on those vitamins and minerals because that's what we're giving in actually uh, quite not high doses. I always hate to say that because people kind of get scared when they hear high doses, they think it's going to be toxic but higher than what you get out of a vitamin mineral pill that you'd purchase in a supermarket. So if you look at the label of a vitamin and mineral pill in a supermarket, you'll turn it around and you'll see that it um, you know, gives you all these, a list of these, new, these uh, minerals and vitamins. And I'll give you uh, the dose relative to the RDA or the DV, the recommended dietary allowance or your daily value. I'm not quite sure how it would be done in the States, but something like that. And, um, or RDI sometimes is used. So it'll say it'll say percentage-wise, and it'll be fairly low for the most part. There might be a few that may be a bit higher, but some might be even five percent or ten percent of your RDA. And if we think of the RDA 
um, the way it was originally con conceptualized was that if you hit 100% for your daily intake of these nutrients, then you should be fine. But actually, the RDA is about identifying a minimal amount for a healthy population in order to event, uh, uh, prevent them from getting a frank nutritional deficiency like scurvy or rickets. It's not what your brain needs. And in fact, none of the RDAs were developed with the brain in mind. So when you think about the brain as what I like to call the hungriest organ, which is that it's 2% of your body weight, but between 20 to 40% of the nutrients you consume go towards brain metabolic activity, you start to realize that when you're eating, you're predominantly feeding your brain. And so with that concept in mind, you realize that actually, if you want to make sure that your brain has the all the fuel it needs to do what it needs to do in terms of regulation of mood and attention and all of that, you may need to go over that RDA value. And that's what we've been doing. So we go over RDA, but below what's if typically below the, what's called the UL, which is the upper limit. And when you go over the upper limit, then you get closer to the opportunity to potentially have a toxic effect. But big caveat there is that ULs are developed when you only consume one nutrient at a time. So if you were to consume magnesium, you might know that the side effect associated with that would be like at a high dose would be diarrhea. But if you take it alongside other nutrients, that's less likely to happen. Or if you were to consume zinc by itself, the UL for zinc is, is to prevent you from getting a copper deficiency because zinc and copper work together. But if you take zinc along with copper, then you can go over that UL mm -hmm. safely. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. So that, you know, so there's, there's logical reasons for going over the UL because some of the ULs are, dis, are developed and um, determined based on single nutrient studies which actually don't make any sense because no nutrient works alone mm -hmm. in the body. <laughs> they work together. Well, let me try and explain why what you're telling me appears as, as new information or at least as counter to what I get from my general practitioner when I go every year for um, my physical. So I, I go and we order a full blood panel. And this is a, a gentleman I respect who seems to be up on the latest science. And he says, this is the only way by doing a full blood panel that we will truly be able to understand if you have a deficiency in any of these micronutrients, right? And every year I go and I appear to be doing okay. Maybe my vitamin D is a little bit low, which I'm hearing more and more from other people. But that that's all I know about the idea of me being a healthy person, eating somewhat correctly. But what you're saying is that that medical model may not actually be um, the gold standard or the future of the way we understand micronutrients. Um, very possibly. So when they do a blood panel like that, they're looking at those levels in your blood which doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what's available in the brain. So that's the first thing, is that it, it, it isn't telling you what's in the cells, for example. And, the, and for some nutrients, you, the, it, your body works really, really hard to maintain, keep it in a homeostatic state. And so it will draw things out of, say, for example, bones in order to get a normal state in a very regulated state in your blood. So we have to just be really careful. So until you get sort of close to end stage, mm. you may start to see deficiency occurring in some nutrients. So that's one of the problems. But the other problem with it is that when you get your, your bloods tested, you're compared to the average person who's getting their blood tested. And so people who get their blood tested may be more likely to be ill. And so those values may be changed. Mm. And so that's one of the challenges. But the other thing that we've come to the conclusion of based on research is that we did blood panels like the one that you described with all the people who went into our first original trials. And we looked to see whether or not that was a predictor of whether or not you responded to the vitamins and minerals. And the answer was pretty much not really. Vitamin D is an exception. If you're really, really low in vitamin D, then you're probably going to benefit from additional vitamin D, which you would get out of the the treatment that we would be providing. 
But outside of that, we've seen nor pretty much normal B12 levels. And we look at sort of your, um, your zinc, your copper. So other nutrients, not the full array, because doing the full array of those about 30 essential vitamins and minerals is expensive. And so we do the ones that are typical, typically done by your GP. Mm. So where, so those data really challenged it for me because I thought, like you, that if it would only be the people who had deficiencies right. who would respond. And yet the data didn't say that. And there's other studies that have also confirmed that as well. So what that kind of makes me think is that what might be happening is that if you're if you've got a disorder and like ADHD or like depression, then your metabolic needs may be higher and your need for vitamins and minerals may be higher than the average individual who is healthy. And so it, it might be deficiency relative to your metabolic needs as opposed to relative to the average individual. So that's the only way I can try to understand yeah. those data, that they're not super helpful at an individual level to identify someone who is potentially needing more. And I've heard this story over and over again of people saying, I got my blood levels tested and I was fine. And my doctor said not to take any more nutrients, but they might've, you know, they might've, you know, I've heard stories of people saying, oh, I, but I actually responded really well to just taking some more B12, for example, because people have different ways of metabolizing some of these nutrients. They might have a genetic difference, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of reasons why you might need more than what um, it would be suggested based on your blood pa right. panel. So I, I, I totally hear that point. But but here's the other piece of information I'm trying to grapple with as we're having this conversation is that, you know, we did a program, it was a couple years ago, on the supplements industry. And I know you're not going to say I'm pushing supplements because that term is very loaded. But the idea is that people believe that taking excess B12 or D or whatever could have big impacts. And, and the data that I've seen, or at least what I've heard from the guests that have come on the program, is that there is no evidence that supplements have impacts on our health. And that might just be our physical health. And maybe we're talking about something very different here. And I realize these are broad stroke arguments, but certainly this must be an argument you hear. I hear it all the time. So yes, all the time I hear that. And and. But if you look at the data, so it's true that if you give single nutrients, then I'd say the data on that are underwhelming. So all there's there's studies that have been done, say, you know, give some some zinc or just give some vitamin C or whatever to try to treat a complex psychiatric disorder. And the there's been meta-analyses that have been done and Overall, those single nutrient studies show either no effect or very modest effects in some cases. So there are so with you know there's a few exceptions. So overall, though, underwhelming. And so I can understand why some of your guests would come on and say this isn't a valuable in terms of a, a route or a treatment for um, health. Uh, but the difference between those single nutrient studies and what we're doing is that we're giving the full array of them. So when I explained to you before that if you just give zinc, you can cause a copper deficiency, um, or if you give just B12, then that can affect folate. So there's there's all of these you know combinations that are important. So when you just give one, it actually doesn't make any sense. It's not logical to just give one, and yet we do that as scientists um, and we fall into that trap all the time because partially probably because of the pharmaceutical industry is that they do give one molecule and that that does have an effect on neurotransmission and it can have an effect in terms of you know SSRIs as we know they can affect the serotonin availability within the synaptic cleft so so we've got this mo medical model that kind of drives how we do studies um, but it actually it doesn't make any sense when it comes to nutrients. I mean, as a, so as a as a as a therapist, you know that if you were to just do one thing in your therapy, like I don't know, you might just you know one piece of CBT would be potentially I don't know challenging some very specific cognitions. You wouldn't get very far. You the the magic of psychotherapy is that you are doing multiple different things in combination and that no one piece of that is the special ingredient. So if you can if you can think about perhaps the this treatment from a similar lens, then maybe it's you can start to make sense why it doesn't make sense to just study one nutrient.
And so the combination together, this approach has yielded far greater uh, impact on brain health. So not just my lab, but labs from all over the world. There's in the States, there's a guy called Jim Adams who's been doing the same kind of similar approach with autism. There's been studies around the world where they've used this broad spectrum approach with uh, reducing aggression in prisoners with great benefits. And that's those studies have been going on since I think late 1990s. Um, there's studies that have been done on stress and B vitamins that have shown that B vitamins are, are uh, superior to placebo in reducing stress. Uh, and then there's our studies that have been done on ADHD and then replicated in the States just recently. I published in a really good journal, Journal of American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, showing a replication of what we had observed here in New Zealand. So it's hard for me to understand when the data are clearly showing superiority of this broad spectrum approach of micronutrients over placebo, why people are continuing to say what you just said to me. Mm -hmm. I just think they're slow to catch up on the research. Yeah, no, fair enough. Let's talk for a second about the Western diet, which you which you referenced a little while ago as well. And this is something that I think is being heavily talked about. And uh, whether it's the high amount of grains, processed food, sugars, and, and I wonder if you could speak specifically about what it is about that diet that may have really um, detrimental impacts on our mental health. Sure. I think that's a great question and think with something we, something we really need to be looking at and really rapidly, like it's an urgent issue here. Uh, the, the change in our diet over the last hundred years is stunning. It's huge. And the biggest change though, I think that's, that's happened to our diet is the reduction in the availability of vitamins and minerals that you can get out of source out of your food. If you're eating a mostly uh, standard uh, sad diet, then you will be eating mostly ultra-processed products that are have been depleted of their nutrients. They might be fortified with one or two or maybe a few, a few, but certainly not the full 30 that you need in order for your body and your brain to, to function optimally. So if you're reducing your fruits and vegetable intake and you're eating mostly processed products, then you're going to find that you're not going to be consuming a lot of these vitamins and minerals. And going back to that RDA concept, you may be way below RDA in terms of the availability of those nutrients. And I've looked at this in terms of the diet, you know, if you are consuming those types of foods, the, the, the relative RDA for the nutrients in those foods is really, really low. If you then look at a whole food diet, which is what our ancestors ate, and you look at that nutrient levels, if you look at things like your lentils or your, your beans or your, you know, your, your fish, your, 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 your bananas, your nuts, etc the foods that our ancestors would have eaten, then you end up with a much higher level of those vitamins and minerals. So I think that's one of the big changes that's happened. And the focus on the sugars and the salt and the saturated fats has really overshadowed and overshadowed our interest in the nutrient micronutrient content of our food. So we keep focusing on just making sure that your foods don't have those specific nutrients that have been identified as being evil and then you and then the american public will think yeah you're just fine but in fact um we're and sorry everybody around the world not just americans uh so we think okay as long as the foods are low in that and they're and it'll say that in the packages uh you know on the front of the package low in salt or low in fat etc that that's kind of fooling the consumer into thinking that that product is going to good be good for me but in fact, it says nothing about those micronutrients. And so if you look at the back of the package, you'll see these nutrient information uh, about that food. And they'll tell you about your fats, your carbs, and your proteins, and your calories. But again, micronutrients don't really feature. There, You might see three or four on your list on the, on the back of the package, but you will again not see that full array. If you saw that full array of the nutrients that you need to consume, you probably see a bunch of zeros in terms of its percentage in that, in that package or in that food. So I think... Th those reasons, just uh, what's not in the food, um, as well as what is in those foods, really should make us all stop and think deeply next time we want to put one of those foods into our mouth. 
that's an interesting way of thinking about it. It kind of turns it upside down. Just as you say, instead of thinking, well, I'm not eating any sugar, that doesn't actually matter if you're not consuming any vitamins along the way. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so when I think about the push right now for, uh, you know, no sugar Coke, you're kind of like, well, so, (laughs) so why would you drink that anyway? There's nothing of value in there for your body. Yeah. There's, it'll give you maybe a hit. It'll give you a good dopamine hit for a very short period of time, and then you'll probably crash. Yeah. And on top of that, you're, have, you're consuming artificial sweeteners, which um, are now are being shown to have an effect on your microbiome. So all in all, that's something I would clear, clearly avoid. Finally, for those that are, are dealing with, let's say, medications related to a mental health disorder, are, do, you, do you now believe firmly enough that, you know... I, nutrition might be the way that you should turn, that this is something that should be taken really seriously? Um, That's a good question. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, medications, I mean, I know that they can be helpful uh, for some people. And so I'm not here to tell people to stop their medications and certainly don't want people to do that because the concerns around, say, for example, withdrawal off of those medications. So if you are thinking about doing that, then you need to do that in association with your prescriber. Uh, So, but... If you're the somebody who's coming in for the first time, your first um, presentation of a mental health issue, then I think it would be a great, you know, great place if we were to start looking at maybe some of the these lifestyle issues in which medication, uh, micronutrients or nutrition or your diet would be one of them uh, as the first point of call uh, before medicating people because at the moment medication is our frontline form of treatment I, I don't know what the stats are in the states but i'm guessing it's probably close to 20 percent of the adult population is on an antidepressant i don't know that's the numbers over here so i imagine they're similar over there so you've got a large percentage of the population who are being put on those and the pr- trouble with those is that they're hard to come off of and people end up on them long term so, and the other challenge though with the nutrients that we've been studying is that all our research has been done with people who are medication free, that is no psychiatric drugs. And so that, and that is an important caveat because if you were to take the nutrients that we've been studying alongside a medication, you might find what we think happens there is that the nutrients potentiate the effect of the medication, which means that the side effects can become more significant and substantial. And so it does need to be done carefully alongside a physician. And there are physicians and psychiatrists who are getting trained in the States. And this is definitely, you know, in using nutrients, Um, Arizona University offers this type of training. So it is happening, but slowly, that there are practitioners out there who know how to do what's called cross tapering. And um, so, so that's, that's, I guess, what I would see as the future, an ideal future from my perspective, knowing this data is that we look at food first and then use medications when that approach doesn't, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Julia Rucklidge, professor of clinical psychology in the School of Psychology, Speech and Hearing at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Julia, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. You're very welcome, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be on. And still to come on Life Examines, we love junk food. How food companies capitalize on our emotions. We'll hear from journalist and author Michael Moss. You can stay connected to Life Examined by finding us on Facebook. Join the conversation, become part of our community. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Julia Rucklidge talk about the research potential of nutrient and vitamin-rich foods in treating and preventing some mental health disorders like anxiety and depression, offering an alternative to some of the roughly 20% of adults who take medication. We're going to continue the conversation by exploring our own relationship with food. Why do we love certain foods? 
what makes it so hard to distinguish between a good calorie from a bad calorie? Have food companies sabotaged our relationship with nutritional food by giving us fast and easy calorie fixes? And can we take back control of the foods we love? Michael Moss is a journalist and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. And his latest book is titled Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Well, Michael Moss, welcome back to Life Examined. Hey, Jonathan. Good to talk to you again. So we're exploring this this idea of how what we eat can really impact how we feel. But most importantly, I think looking at this idea of how we can feel emotionally or psychologically or the ways in which um, we can learn or feel tired or, or emotional in different ways. And I wonder, just to kind of uh, leave it as an open question to you, when you began research, did, did you think there was going to be a link between mental health and what these food giants are producing for us? You know, I was really, I was really surprised at the moment when I'm, I'm meeting and spending time with with the gentleman who invented the lunchables. If you remember mm. those things, right? That those yeah. packaged bits of of processed ham and cheese, and that morphed into lunchable pancakes and tacos and the hamburgers and cold pizza and the you know and and the people who invented it for for craft were skeptical that kids were going to like this stuff because they certainly didn't just kind of taste it and their parents didn't think they would like it but but what happened was their discovery that our eating habits are driven so much by emotion and the ceo of the company was 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 famous or infamous for sort of telling some reporters at one point that lunchables isn't about food so much as it is about empowerment um, when kids, you know, whip those little things out of their lunch bags, they were like the cat's meow of the lunchroom, the envy of other kids. And, and so the company came up with this jingle that went something like, all day you have to do what they say, but lunchtime is all yours. Mm. And that's when Lunchables became kind of this billion dollar product. And so, and so that for me was, it was a real moment when I realized that the industry sort of, you know, knows how to tap into our deepest biology um, and knows, you know, the emotions and knows that we eat for emotional reasons as much as we do kind of for for pure hunger. And they're, and they're, they're really cunning in figuring out those emotions and shaping their packaging, you know, and, and, the, and the product formulations themselves. What is it exactly that American processed foods do to the human brain? Yeah, so um, you know, I wrote the first book, Salt Sugar Fat, because I was I was really kind of focused on on that you know unholy trinity of ingredients, if you will, because they're so powerful, and each of those things have this you know uncanny ability to excite the reward center of the brain. Right, you taste sugar on the tongue, you feel fat in your mouth, you taste salt on the tongue. And our system is set up so that those things send a signal, a really fast signal to that part of the brain that rewards us for doing things that we think are good for us. Um, and so we get a little buzz of excitement and we get encouragement to kind of keep doing that. So, so I think that kind of inherently that, that remains kind of essentially the most powerful thing about processed food, especially those kind of three, those kind of three ingredients. But but what I discovered kind of when I looked at this question of whether we should consider these highly processed food products to be addictive, like cigarettes and alcohol and some drugs, which I was really skeptical of the beginning, I sort of went into this whole other world of realizing and discovering that the companies know how to tap into even deeper instincts of ours. And so when you eat something highly processed or you, you eat their, their products that are designed in this way, they're looking to exploit our natural attraction to cheapness or, or things that require low energy expenditure on our part. And one can imagine going back to hunter-gatherer days and you know people realize it was much easier just to reach down and grab that poor aardvark for dinner instead mm. of trying to chase down an Apollo. Well, so that's why the food companies have working for them these 
chemical laboratories called flavor houses, which mix and match ingredients to simulate real flavors and tastes and real food. But one of the primary missions for the food industry is to reduce the cost of the food because they know when we walk in the grocery store and that box of toaster pastries is like 15 cents less than it was last week, we will by instinct get really excited about that. Mm. Um, you know, we have a natural attraction to variety. <clears throat> and it kind of explains why humans have been able to adapt to lots of different kinds of food sources over the years. And it's, you know, it's why people in the Arctic can love whale blubber because it's there and it's their source of calories and fuel um, and they adapt to it. Well, so variety is the reason why you walk into the grocery store, into the cereal aisle, and there are 200 versions of sugary starch um, collectively kind of presenting us with this buzz, pretense in that case, of there being variety. Um, and then the other really fascinating thing is that we by instinct are drawn toward calories because for most of our existence, calories was like life and death. Putting on body fat was a really good thing because it got you through drought and famine um, and times when you when you couldn't eat. So what has the food industry done? It's created these products that are hugely packed, densely pass, packed with calories. And because of kind of this big mismatch that we're in right now between our biological ability to detect and sense good food versus bad food and, and, and what the industry's created in the last 50 years, they've created a situation where now overeating is an everyday thing and we're unable to tell the difference between junk calories and good calories on a basic kind of instinctual level. And you know, I'll just give you another example of that. I mean, during the pandemic, we thought, you know, at least we were going to get away from arguably kind of the worst corner of processed food, which is like the bending machine in the office, right? Because we're all working at home. But what happened is we went into the grocery stores driven by the emotion of fear and angst. And that caused us to turn to eating junk stuff that we hadn't had since we were kids. And sale, you know, to the delight of the food company, sales of chips and cookies and and junk crackers and stuff just started soaring during the pandemic. And I think that was a, maybe one of the most vivid examples of how, you know, even even with our best intentions, um, the food companies are able to keep us, you know, in in in, in their grasp and, and and control our our diet to such an astounding extent. It's interesting to think that uh, that food sales of those of those particular types of foods exploded during the pandemic. Because another thing that got worse were people's mental health, and mm. you know we've seen incredible rates of anxiety and depression. And but let's begin to talk a little bit about how foods or highly processed foods or a bad diet can begin to impact someone's, say, levels of anxiety or depression. I mean, you talked about the idea that, that these foods are triggering this kind of, this, this pleasure sense in the brain, but there has to be a shadow side to that as well. That can't just continue all day long. So um, what are your thoughts when we begin to look at this link together? You know, I think it depends on people, but, but everybody, you know, everybody, can have sort of different trigger foods and and um you know over the years when i've looked at that I've, you know it's 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 amazing how many people for whom sugar can be sort of a trigger like that i mean i would mm -hmm. go to meetings of groups called um you know overeaters anonymous or or food addicts anonymous um and and they would get up and sort of tell their story about how just getting you know a grain of sugar can cause them to you know, totally lose control of their eating habits so that they'll go to the grocery store and get home and the car will be, you know, littered with empty wrappers from stuff that they've eaten just, you know, um, dangerously on, 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 on the way home. So, I mean, I think that linkage, that linkage between food and mental health was, has been known to us for like a long time. You know, the word diet, um, I paid attention to diet because much to my my dismay, none other than the largest processed food companies 
bought up and took control over the most kind of popular diet schemes in the country, including Weight Watchers and, 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 um, you know, and which, which, you know, which was an effort on their part, not only to sort of dominate our eating habits, but to exploit even our efforts to regain control over those eating habits. But the, the word diet itself originally, you know, was coined to me, not just sort of, you know, food and mental health, but getting enough sleep and having good work and sort of all of these things combined mm. um, that lead to us feeling better ourselves and being happier and living, living better, living better lives. So, so I would caution not to isolate sort of food and health, but also sort of include these, these, these other factors as well that, that, that go into that go into that. Mm -hmm. Do we know anything, though, for example, about the role of sugar or fat on on what it does to the brain? I mean, does it leave us in an altered state uh, that is not particularly helpful in terms of how we feel or think? Well, I mean, if an altered state is craving something to the extent to which you have to stop whatever you're doing and, you know, consume those Oreos, then, then, yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a really strong sense that for some people, right, these food products act like cigarettes or alcohol or even some drugs. And, mm. and, and, and the best approach for those people is to abstain and just try to avoid those products or certainly at moments during the day when they're most vulnerable to to those things. So I think that I think that I mean, that's the thing that I focused on most in kind of looking at this question of addiction um, are losing control is the point where those products that are highly steeped in those three ingredients and, and other things as well that drives up to drive us nuts. Um, yeah, should be viewed as things are addictive, and we should treat them with, with lots of caution as we would, you know, controlled substances. Hmm. So instead of saying, for example, that uh, we believe, and maybe there isn't direct evidence, oh, that that sugar causes anxiety or depression, instead of instead of that, it's more of the idea that I mean, that certain foods are addictive, and what comes with addictive behavior are depression or anxiety or craving or compulsions, things like that. Yeah, I like that view. I like that view of it too. And I, you know, and, and another way of sort of thinking about it too. Well, I mean, I think one of the most powerful aspects of, of processed food um, is, is speed. Um, because everything design, everything about processed food is designed for speed, the packaging, the formulation, and then the speed with which the products are able to deliver that you know, hit of joy to the reward center of the brain is is faster than tobacco and 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 alcohol. And so, so, so I've started to sort of call these food products, you know, fast groceries, like we think about fast food, and you know, and in thinking about solutions too, to sort of think about ways to slow down our eating habits, um, not to the point where it becomes totally inconvenient and it ruins our life. I mean, I have a recipe for homemade spaghetti sauce that takes like 90 seconds. Mm. So it's not, I mean, I think to some extent the industry has oversold this idea of convenience to us as a way to <clears throat> keep us coming back for, for their products. But but yeah, I think another another way of looking at this, another way of, of reach, you know, of figure out how to eat more healthy and be, mentally healthy with the food we're eating just think about ways to kind of slow down our approach to food and overall eating habits mm -hmm. but it also strikes me though that that you know it's not just sugar but also say caffeine or other things that produce these incredible spikes of pleasure and also energy but then lead to this profound crashes as well and that how that phenomenon, you know, can can happen to anyone. But I think it, there are certain populations in America, food deserts, we talk about where that might be the primary food that's being ingested by a certain population. And how could that not have adverse impacts on their physical and mental health? Oh, my gosh, I was a, I was a reporter in Colorado back in the early 1980s, when the first Twinkie defense caves came up, it was a hmm guy who was traveling cross country in his motorcycle and he was eating out of vending machines 
and he stopped and in a moment of complete derangement as i recall sort of shot you know a motorist that was sleeping in his car and, and his defense was you know complete insanity by by overeating twinkies and and <laughs> so you know yeah you know those guys wrote the book the sugar blues decades ago where they were noticing that again you know, sugar sweetness is something that can cause us to lose control with those rapid sort of spikes of pleasure. Um, and, 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 and it is in fact sort of a very, for some people in, in some conditions, is it dangerous substance that, that we have to think a lot about to, to try to control. And I know you're not someone that looks exactly at, at any direct ties kind of biologically between foods and, and mental health, but were, were there any other things that jumped out to you? Like when we think about, for example, ADHD or, or the ability to, or the lack of ability to focus or how any of these foods might impact any of our other mental states? Mm. Well, I'll give you the opposite of that. And so I in the last book I wrote hooked with it, with a look at some science on non-calorie sweeteners, right? So what we have going on now is kind of this health washing going on in the grocery store where the companies in responding to our growing concern about, about the, you know, the health impacts of their products are scrambling to present us with things that appear to look better, but in fact really aren't. But one of the things they're doing is replacing sugar with non-caloric sweeteners of all types. And there are products in the store that some of them have two or three of these sweeteners. Well, these folks in Australia did this amazing experiment where they took fruit flies which have a very similar palate to us, right? They love sweets and they love beer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so they're really good for sort of studying in the laboratory. Um, but they took two groups of these flies and they fed them, they fed them both the basic, you know, fruit fly chow diet, but then one group got these non-nutritive, non-caloric non sweeteners. And that group went absolutely nuts they couldn't sleep they couldn't they couldn't sit they had flying constantly they were exhibiting signs of starvation even though they were getting the same amount of calories through their chow as the control group um and the thought is that eating these non-nutritive sweeteners that that present themselves as being, you know, sugar with calories, the brain thinks calories are coming in, but then the calories don't, um, was was causing these poor little animals to, um, to think that they were starving and act like they're starving. And so it's kind of the flip side to sort of sugar, but I think it, I think it illustrates the extent to which processed foods and the, the the manipulated formulations that the companies come up with um, can can really mess with our heads and our biology and 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 put us out of whack. Mm -hmm. and, and one of our other guests said, you know, it's it's not just the fact that these things are loaded with with sugar or salt or fat, but it's that what happens when that's all we eat and we don't get the other primary nutrients that kind of sustain our lives in more healthy ways, which is, which is an equally big problem. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're going, you know, again, the, the hugest imbalance we see of course is, and it's a crude measure of ill health, but, but, you know, is obesity. Um, and I mean, before the pandemic, the obesity rate had passed 42% in this country, which means mm -hmm. people of an average height, have at least and often much more um, than 35 extra pounds of, of, of weight sort of for optimum health. And I think that's, it is a crude measure, but it's a, but it's a, but it's a good measure of our loss of control or, you, over our eating habits, which, which again, sort of leads to loss of control over our, over our health. I've been speaking with Michael Moss. He's the author, most recently, of Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Michael, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Really great talking to you. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And how do you feel about this subject? Do certain foods make you feel a certain way? Do you think there is a correlation between what we eat and how we feel? Join the conversation on our Facebook page. You can find it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day.